Hey y'all, before we close out this series, we have one more podcast recommendation for you. Gone Cold is a true crime podcast about cold cases from all over Texas, and they recently released a three-part series on a satanic panic-related murder case that we didn't cover here in our series. It's called When the Devil Went to Gilmore. It's fantastic, as all their episodes are, so if you like true crime in Texas, you'll definitely dig what they do. Look for Gone Cold wherever you're listening to this right now. Okay, let's do this. There was a specter haunting America, the specter of navigating politics without a faceless enemy to blame for all of our problems. The Berlin Wall had fallen, the Soviet Union had dissolved, and the Cold War had finally come to an end. But our systemic problems became all the more stark without an iron curtain to sweep them under. Without a universal scapegoat, the technocrats went hunting for new enemies abroad, while the people went hunting within. Which brings us to the next iteration of our theory, and this time around, the five pillars of panic are way more intersectional. Pillar 1. Economic Uncertainty The afterglow of the Reagan era was starting to feel more like a hangover. The escalation of the war on drugs laid the groundwork for the mass incarceration of the 90s, and his dream of a North American free trade agreement was signed into law by Bush and implemented by Clinton, kickstarting the irreversible hemorrhaging of American jobs to the cheap labor of foreign countries. The cost of living was rising, wages were falling. Labor unions were demonized as a cultural anachronism, and quality of life, for the first time since World War II, had begun its now all too familiar decline. Pillar 2, Revolution in Media Reagan had also ended the Fairness Doctrine, which wasn't an especially well-conceived or well-written law, but by requiring equal time for opposing viewpoints and broadcasting, it did have some impact on keeping everyone grounded in the same reality. In its absence, right-wing talk radio flourished, and with the Soviets out of the picture, the new folk devil of AM radio became fellow Americans. Thanks in no small part to the success of reactionary shock jocks like Rush Limbaugh, Republicans swept the House and Senate in 1994. In response, Clinton went all in on neoliberalism, taking the entire Democratic Party with him and destroying any hope for an actual, viable left-wing party in America. For now, anyway. Clinton declared, The era of big government is over and adopted a series of conservative policies to help secure his re-election, including the 1996 Telecommunications Act, allowing for all mainstream media, TV, radio, and print to conglomerate under the ownership of just six corporations, each of them for-profit, and all of them in near complete control of what Americans did or didn't hear. Video games like Mortal Kombat and Doom supplanted role-playing games as the folk devil of choice among concerned parents but the analog gaming community hadn't forgotten what was done to them. The anti-RPG crusade, like every moral panic, suffered a backlash effect. In a way, Bad had done to an entire generation exactly what they'd always warned D&D would do. Gamers in the 90s turned against Christianity as an oppressor, manifesting most noticeably in a decade of grimdark aesthetic, the embrace of goth culture and the occult, and the rise in popularity of live-action role-playing, or LARP. We're all about that stuff. Sadly, there are photos. But that kind of pendulum swing tends to cause its own share of damage. Bad survivors turn their ire on Christian gamers, kids just like themselves, many of whom had been just as persecuted, if not more so, and alienated them from the nerd hobby world. Moral entrepreneurs invariably become the very things they claim to hate 
projecting their own desires and failings onto their opponents, and engaging in their own twisted version of everything they claim to revile. But sometimes, the folk devils themselves can overcorrect in their retribution. With time, the pendulum swings back to a steady center, but not without casualties. And yeah, this is going to come up again later. Pillar 3. Controversial Science the strange new frontier of the internet gave rise to new crimes that had never existed before, including the very real but very overblown threat of child predators using the web to lure their unsuspecting victims. But even with all the world's knowledge just a click away, people still preferred to trust their own feelings. The internet was an incredible blessing to the church of conspiracism, connecting the people who otherwise connected newspaper clippings with red yarn in their basement. It bolstered their convictions and introduced them to theories they otherwise never would have considered. They weren't really reaching new audiences yet, but it was still a sea change. They weren't alone anymore. Statistics, too, got caught up in the whirlwind of emotional controversy. In the mid-90s, the violent crime rate was on a steady and significant decline. It still is, but people didn't perceive it that way, and they still don't. In a 2016 interview, Newt Gingrich took the same tack that he had 20 years before. The average American, I'll bet you this morning, doesn't think crime is down, doesn't think they're safer. The current view is that liberals have a whole set of statistics, which theoretically might be right, but it's not where human beings are. And sadly, he was right. Like Pazder said back in the early 80s when he was grilled about the veracity of his book, Michelle Remembers, in the end, it doesn't matter. Pillar 4. Social Progress and Backlash the beating of Rodney King at the hands of the LAPD marked the first time a video of an incident like that had gone viral, well, the 90s version of it at least, which sparked massive riots across the country. The O.J. Simpson trial had a similar effect, being the first time a high-profile black man wasn't convicted in a criminal trial, and the reactions from the public only further exposed America's deep racial divide. Both incidents prompted a reactionary rally around the police that persists to this day. Law enforcement culture, taking a cue from Gingrich, convinced themselves the declining crime rates were just liberal math magic, a devil's trick, a calm before the coming storm. Criminologist James Fox gave a dire warning at the time, quote, As long as we fool ourselves in thinking that we're winning the war against crime, we may be blindsided by this bloodbath of teenage violence lurking in the future. Suddenly, politicians of both parties were obsessed with getting tough on crime, especially juvenile delinquency. Laws were passed that permitted teens to be tried and imprisoned as adults, even eligible for the death penalty. It was the advent of three strikes rules, mass incarcerations, and welfare restrictions, many of which were spearheaded or championed by the current President of the United States. Pillar 5. Folk Devil Politics and Conspiracism Immigration to the U.S. had continued its steady growth since 1965, when regional and race-based restrictions were lifted. And while Tucker Carlson now mentions it through gritted teeth nearly every night on his show, he certainly wasn't the first. Phyllis Schlafly, always ahead of the curve, demonized the decision from the get-go, believing the conflict would be the next evolution in the Southern strategy. She was right. There was one little problem with her narrative, though. Immigration was a net positive for the Reagan-Thatcher-era neoliberal capitalists, which meant both parties were pretty okay with it up until the mid-90s. But things weren't going all that well for the workers of America, for a lot of reasons, and the average voter was just as desperate for a folk devil to explain their plight as the neoliberals were for a scapegoat. 
and then along came Pat Buchanan's failed presidential runs in 1992 and 96, premised entirely on an immigration moratorium and construction of a southern border wall. His numbers might not have been enough to win him office, not even close, but they were enough to spook the establishment, so both parties decided it was time to crack down. Buchanan's platform, by the way, was explicitly based on a book by an avowed white supremacist named Peter Brimlow, with an assist from an organization called FAIR, which openly promoted eugenics. But that fact never got much coverage, only further blurring the line between the mainstream and, well, straight-up Nazi shit, and neither party found it politically expedient to correct the record. Mainstream media outlets in the 90s routinely quoted FAIR uncritically and without any mention of their eugenicist roots. One of the few exceptions was a 1997 Wall Street Journal op-ed which accurately called out the organization's claim that immigrants were left-wing ideologues, as well as its vocal advocacy for infanticide, forced sterilization, and starving the people of Africa to quote, discourage breeding. The op-ed also called out National Review and other conservatives for promoting the organization's talking points. You ready for a plot twist? That op-ed was written by a young and up-and-coming journalist by the name of Tucker Carlson. Sometimes the only difference between calling out Nazis and becoming their mouthpiece is a lucrative spot in primetime. But immigrants weren't the only folk devils panicking the Beltway. In the 80s, Reagan had successfully conjured up the debunked racist stereotype of welfare queens paid by the government to have babies, in an effort to demonize single mothers, gin up racial animus, and derail support for social programs. But cynical talking heads in the 90s found a new way to exploit the myth. Everybody knows the crime statistics are fake news, but who are the perpetrators of all this totally real and scary crime? The children of welfare queens, of course. They've grown up without a father, without the dignity of work, knowing nothing but drugs, crime, and violence. They're superhuman and subhuman all at once. They're super predators. In the run-up to the 1996 election, Bill Clinton and his Republican challenger Bob Dole were competing to see who could sound the toughest on so-called super predators. Clinton even encouraged cities to enact curfews on minors and use the myth as a rationale for his welfare reform, claiming government aid programs were causing, quote, moral poverty that turned America's urban and low-income and inner-city teens into supervillains. I doubt we need to tell you what politicians really mean when they start busting out those euphemisms. But in the late 90s, a series of high-profile murders shot a gaping plot hole in that narrative. The killers, in every case, were bored suburban white kids from upper-middle-class homes who looked a whole lot more likely to play the stock market than play D&D. As Laycock wrote in his book, This seemed to be the one possibility Americans were unwilling to face. There was an increasing push to frame white murderers as goths or otherwise part of some strange subculture that made them fundamentally different from their white suburban peers. Lying about the statistics was one thing, but this was going to be a hard one to spin. For the first time in a long time, the right side of culture found themselves without a devil to blame for their own misdeeds. It could have, should have been, an inflection point for the country. A rare opportunity for self-awareness, humility, and soul-searching after 400 years of sanctimonious hypocrisy and institutionalized witch-finding. But it never happened, because on April 20th, 1999, Columbine did. It wasn't the country's first mass school shooting. That would be the University of Texas Bell Tower massacre some 40 years earlier, which is a harrowing story we should probably do an episode about sometime. But the shooting was the most deadly in American history, at the time at least. 
It was also the first to be broadcast live from news helicopters circling the campus as high school students fled in fear for their lives. It marked the beginning of a dark new era where such incidents would become so commonplace that we almost expect them now. But it's kind of hard to explain to those too young to remember just how shocking and horrifying Columbine was. The whole country just stopped. We were 14 at the time, and I remember distinctly getting home from school that day, mere hours after the shooting, and turning on the news. On the screen was the now infamous security camera photo of Dylan Klebold and Eric Harris brandishing a Tech 9 and High Point Carbine, juxtaposed on the screen with a promotional photo of Marilyn Manson. The killers left behind a trove of journals and video diaries they recorded in the lead up to the massacre. And while psychologists picked them apart and quibbled over their meanings, there was a few noteworthy through lines. Malignant narcissism, incel-like complaints about women, celebration of the Oklahoma City bombing, and praise for the Nazis. All of which, unfortunately, will come up again later. If those aspects of the case were reported on at all, we certainly didn't see it. And neither did our parents, or our school, or pretty much anyone else. Columbine should have been remembered as the most recent and most deadly in an ongoing trend of suburban white kid violence that America was desperately struggling to explain away. Instead, like Patricia pulling before them, the media dug through the killer's closets till they found the D&D character sheets. The smoke hadn't even cleared before major outlets reported that the boys were wearing Marilyn Manson shirts during the killing spree. They weren't, and few, if any, bothered to publish corrections. They blamed bands like Rammstein and KMFDM, video games like Doom and Duke Nukem 3D, movies like Pulp Fiction, Natural Born Killers, and Lost Highway. They even reported on Harris having a copy of Apocalypse Now in his VCR at the time, because I, why not? A Washington Post columnist even said the shooters were, quote, part of the gothic subculture inspired by fantasy games such as Dungeons and Dragons. Other outlets took it even further, reporting that Klebold and Harris were members of a sinister goth cult. So case closed as far as the parents of America were concerned. The devil made him do it. And all the 13-year-old gamer nerds who were just starting to dip their toes in the counterculture, some of whom may or may not have been named Brad and Ryan, suddenly fell beneath the shadow of suspicion in the eyes of authority figures, much like their counterparts had 15 years before. We recorded a long, drunken talk about our experiences with all that for our supporters on Patreon if you're interested. Is that, uh, is that really a selling point? I mean, but there's also like t-shirts and stuff. Anyway, the routine was a familiar one. The calls for censorship, dress codes, and profiling of children as potential threats were coming from all sides. A moral panic was brewing, but we'll never know just how bad it might have gotten, because two years later, the whole country stopped once again as the World Trade Center buildings in New York collapsed on live TV. And from the rubble, a new folk devil arose to dethrone all that came before. Muslims. The world had changed forever, but in a sense, not at all. The post-9-11 era took the Orwellian destruction of our shared vocabulary to a new nadir, forever redefining freedom as unquestioned patriotic fervor, the nobility of war, the religious veneration of flags, traditions, and symbols, of uniforms and uniformity. Freedom was the rationalization of state surveillance, the worship of law enforcement, tithing to the bottomless war chest, and a national baptism in the blood of shock and awe. At that time, the devil alone spoke in dissent, at least until Democrats took the White House again. We were both vocal opponents of the Patriot Act and the wars, and take our word for it, majority opinion at the time was a monolith. 
70% of Americans, regardless of party, supported the Iraq War. But 20 years is a long time, and the majority gradually shifted our way. And the very same guys who threatened to stab me to death in a bar parking lot for opposing the war in 2007 are almost certainly telling everyone these days that they've been against it all along. Times have changed, but their definition of freedom hasn't. And I bet you anything, those knives are still burning a hole in their pocket. But let's check back in with the Kellers and maybe, if we're lucky, have something positive to tell you about for once in the series. A 2007 study by the American Academy of Pediatrics concluded that injuries to the hymen don't leave scars like they once thought, which upended a lot of SRA cases, including those against the Kellers and the San Antonio Four. In both cases, that was the only physical evidence they had, but the Texas justice system didn't have much interest in relitigating the past. At that point, Dan and Fran Keller were 15 years into their fight to prove their innocence, which, need we remind anyone, is literally the opposite of how this is supposed to work. As of November 2008, they'd come up for parole three times, and all three times, they were denied. But Travis County had just elected a new DA, Rosemary Lemberg, and maybe, just maybe, she'd see this injustice for what it was. And for the first time in a long time, the Kellers weren't fighting alone. An Austin Chronicle reporter named Jordan Smith shared their optimism about the new DA, and she immediately put pen to paper to press to bring the case back into the spotlight and hopefully bring this nightmare to an end. Gary Cartwright, whose 1994 article for Texas Monthly was our best source for this story, felt the same way. He appended an author's note to his original piece, which read in part, quote, since this article was published, I've kept up a correspondence with the Kellers. I've written letters in support of their parole and visited them both in prison. They sit there silently, day after day, year after year, like a pair of ghosts, watching helplessly as parents die, grandchildren and great-grandchildren get born, and paroles are refused again and again. They won't come up for parole again until 2010, and it's unlikely that the result will be any different. I hope I'm wrong. Then Pete Kennedy joined the fray. As an attorney for the Chronicle, he sued the city of Austin for the release of police memos on the case, and he won, exposing the APD's ignorance, waste, bias, and mistakes to the world. Smith, meanwhile, tracked down Dr. Michael Mao, the ER physician who'd examined Christy Shavir's and provided the only physical evidence in the case. Turns out he learned at a conference three years after the trial that he'd been wrong about the science, and this was long before he had the 2007 study to prove it. He immediately called the Austin police and told them he'd made a terrible mistake. He insisted they retract his report and reconsider the case. But they told me I played a minor part in this and not to worry about it. He said. They said the proof was overwhelming and I should just move on with my life. But it wasn't. And he couldn't. I was mortified to learn that I'd been a conclusive prosecution witness in the killer's trial. So again, he picked up the phone. And again. And then again. But the APD refused to listen or more likely refused to admit that they might have been wrong. In 2012, attorney Keith Hampton agreed to take up the Keller's case pro bono and filed an appeal on their behalf, writing, quote, The state presented misleading evidence about the cemetery, relied on false witness confession, and the testimony of a quack satanic abuse expert, and suggestive interview techniques encouraged the children to make fantastical false statements. The police knew there was nothing to support the cemetery claims, yet they presented testimony to the jury as if there were. To which the APD officially responded, No comment. 
An esteemed professor from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology, Dr. Evan Harrington, was next to join the effort. He wrote a letter in support of the Keller's appeal, and it was co-signed by esteemed scientists, clinicians, and academics. And much to our personal delight, it's basically just a big, beautiful shit on Randy Noblet's testimony, credentials, credibility, and conspiracy theories. Quote, In 2003, Noblet was featured on ABC's Primetime having a conversation with Satan, who, Noblet agreed, was actually a pretty nice guy, notwithstanding, of course, his role as the Dark Lord of Evil. No court and no jury should ever rely on the testimony of Dr. Noblet. Prosecutors likely were unaware they were working with no expert, but a witness better described as a man with a doctorate and fantastical theories of reality. Dr. Noblet provided the context and explanation for the wild tales of child orgies and cemetery rituals, connecting all the curious aspects of the events leading to the trial through his unified theory of satanic ritual abuse. The whole case is a textbook example of the hysteria of the times. Noblet is one of the many so-called experts in this series who were flat out wrong, and even willing to lie when the money was right. But it's important that we make this crystal clear. People like him are the exception, not the rule. And whether it's scientists, academics, doctors, journalists, therapists, social workers, or anyone else, the good, honest folks who make up the other 99% of their respective fields never fail to call them out. And yes, unfortunately that ratio is completely inverse when it comes to prosecutors and police. But the small fraction who did do the right thing were heroes, and in fact served as indispensable sources for all of these stories. If you take nothing else away from this series, let it be this. For every Randy Noblet there is in the world, there's a thousand people with the same or better credentials hanging on their walls who would gladly, if given the opportunity, kick him right in the dick. <laughs> Cheers, y'all. In 2013, D.A. Lemberg finally conceded that Dr. Mao's testimony had influenced the jury's decision and therefore rendered the trial a violation of the Keller's rights. She ruled that they be released from prison immediately on bond, but not fully exonerated. That half-measure left them in legal limbo as convicted felons and sex offenders who could still be called back to court at any time. But it was still a major victory, and after 20 years in prison, Dan and Fran Keller were finally released in late November 2013, just in time for Christmas. But 20 years is a long time to spend in prison, especially as an accused child molester. Dan was repeatedly beaten, almost to the point of death, and his eardrum was permanently broken. Fran was sexually assaulted with a broom handle by fellow inmates and beaten and raped by prison guards. She barely survived and came out of it with severe PTSD. And after each and every attack, both of them said they were denied medical treatment. Quick editorial note. There is literally nothing written in our laws, our constitution, or our criminal sentencing protocol that requires prisons to be horrifying torture chambers and rape dungeons. And keeping them that way is a choice we're collectively making every single day. Just saying. Reporters swarmed the prison gates upon the Keller's release to ask them what they had to say to the world as they took their first steps to rejoin it. Everybody who supported us, we just really appreciate it. They believed in us, thank God. Fran said. Dan said. Y'all have a good day, and the Lord bless you. But the Kellers were far from free. They'd lost everything. The daycare was gone. Lifelong friends no longer wanted anything to do with them for fear of being seen as associating with predators. Even the Keller family photo albums, which were seized by police during the investigation all those years ago, were lost and never returned. They moved into a rent house in New Braunfels, owned by a distant elderly relative, because no one else in town was willing to rent to them. 
It has ruined our lives, Fran said at the time. All we can do is go day to day and hope for the best. Because it's really hard out here, just living on social security, it's, it's really hard. Dan's knees are really bad, he needs surgery, but we can't afford it. We need specialists left and right to fix what's wrong, but we can't afford it. And without legal exoneration, there was no recourse for that. As far as the state of Texas was concerned, they were still felons convicted of the worst crimes imaginable. They couldn't get jobs, the community shunned them, and they were too broke to survive. The Austin Chronicle set up a GoFundMe account for them, but that was all they had until the DA changed her mind. It netted about $11,000 for them to live on for what might very well be the rest of their lives. According to Ware, the state had a financial incentive to not exonerate, on account of the Tim Cole Act, a 2009 law that rendered the state liable for payments of $80,000 per year of false imprisonment, the most any state in the union pays in compensation to the wrongfully convicted. That sounds like an awesome, surprisingly progressive deal, and it would be, if they actually paid up. As anyone from around these parts knows, when it comes to government benefits, the state's pocketbook is all but sewn shut. And given the egregiously long time the Kellers and San Antonio Four spent in prison, the state was on the hook for a total of more than $8 million in restitution between them, if and only if they were officially exonerated. And the only way to do that, at least according to the Twilight Zone nightmare that is the Texas legal system, was to prove themselves sufficiently innocent. Ask the accused of Salem how well that works out. But Keith Hampton and Mike Ware of the Texas Innocence Project kept the pressure on, and in 2015, the Texas State Court of Appeals finally caved and took up the case. Out of the nine presiding judges, only one, Cheryl Johnson, was willing to do the right thing, writing, quote, This was a witch hunt from the beginning. All that remains as proof are the fantastical stories, woven not so much by children as through them, originating from adults swept up in hysteria. The stories are not child fantasies. The imagery is the stuff of adult anxieties. We do not learn from our mistakes unless and until we are required to acknowledge those mistakes." That learning curve, apparently, was still a bit too steep for the court. They were willing to overturn the Keller's conviction, but unwilling to declare them actually innocent. And yes, actually innocent is a real legal term in Texas law that we're not smart enough to properly explain, but it's basically like kicking the legal limbo down the road. They were out of prison, they were no longer convicted felons, but they weren't technically innocent either, whatever the hell that means. All we know is that if they were to declare the Kellers actually innocent, the state would be on the hook for all that restitution cash. Sometimes there are no coincidences. Hampton filed for reconsideration, but it was denied. Everyone thinks this story had a happy ending, he said, but it still hasn't ended and it isn't happy. In 2016, District Attorney Lemberg announced her retirement, and that meant time was running out. It's going to take my believing that they're actually innocent, and I certainly am conflicted. Lemberg said, This isn't about my political capital or anything like that. And you're right. If it's going to happen, it's going to be in the next few months. I think right now I've done everything I can. No, she didn't. And yes, it probably had a little something to do with her political capital. But in all fairness, she claimed to base her decision on personal interviews that she'd done with the Keller's three alleged victims, now adults in their 30s. Christy and Johnny said they didn't remember anything about the case and wanted nothing more to do with it. But Andy Nash still believes the allegations after all these years. Which is heartbreaking on a lot of levels. And every goddamn moral entrepreneur and opportunist we've covered in the last six or whatever hours of this series is 100% culpable for that. 
what they did to him, and by proxy, everyone else involved in this entire case, this entire panic, is an unforgivable crime that will never see justice rightly served. And he's just one of thousands who were forced into the same situation. When Lemberg gave her final decision on the case, she cited Andy Nash as her primary reason for rejecting the Keller's bid for exoneration. There's no way for me to determine they didn't do it, or that a crime didn't occur. I can't find a path to innocence. And again, not how it works. Okay, look, we were willing to give her the benefit of the doubt, but at this point, we think it's worth noting that Lemberg just happened to be the head of the DA's child abuse division at the time of the original trial, and had administrative jurisdiction over the case. We're not saying, legally speaking, that it's an obvious conflict of interest or that she was obviously just covering her own ass to preserve her own legacy, but in our totally unprofessional opinion, and I mean, just like Tucker, I'm just asking questions, but maybe that's a thing. And once again, the Kellers were back in limbo. The incoming district attorney, Margaret Moore, was sympathetic to their case, but also to the alleged victims. She told the Austin Chronicle she met with all three accusers, and two of them, Johnny and Andy, disagreed with her belief that the case should be dismissed. And that's why we don't know their real names. The names of minors involved in abuse cases like this can't be released publicly, even after all these years. Christy Shaviers, which is her real name, no longer considers herself a victim, but her mother, Suzanne, disagrees. I'm very disappointed about the appeal, she told reporters. I'm never going to change my views on it. You have a child telling you things that happened firsthand, things she could have no knowledge of. She was little. She was three and a half. So I know the truth. I know what happened. But on June 20th, 2017, D.A. Moore had a change of heart. She declared the Kellers actually innocent, finally removing all the legal restrictions, all doubt, and opening the door to the compensation they so rightfully deserved. Prosecutors, of course, fought the decision, claiming there was insufficient evidence of their innocence, which for the last time, you know, fuck it. Dan and Fran Keller got three and a half million bucks for the hell they put them through. And some of you out there might be thinking, that's a pretty good deal, maybe even too much. But you ain't never had 20 years of your life stolen from you while you rot in Texas gin pop with people who think you're a satanic child molester. All because somebody made the unforgivable decision to give Geraldo Rivera a microphone. If you ask us, three million is not enough. This means we can actually be free, Fran said when she got the news. We can start living and no more nightmares. At least, as her daughter put it, for the few years they had left. The Kellers said they held no grudge against Dr. Mao, and actually praised him for his courage to come forward and admit his mistake. There's a time and a place for everything, Fran said. And now God and the DA and everyone else has done their job, and we're very thankful. According to the Austin American Statesman, Dan and Fran's first order of business was to buy a house, a car, health insurance, and hearing aids. And, like any good Texans would, invite their friends and family over for barbecue. Now, if you're anything like us, you might be curious to know what, if any, consequences befell the opportunists, moral entrepreneurs, fear peddlers, zealots, and witch burners. We tracked down as many as we could, hoping for some comeuppance or justice, or whatever we could get. So here's a quick where are they now for all the key players throughout this series. And here's to hoping that there's something to the old saying, what goes over the devil's back comes under his belly. Remember John Todd from all the way back in part one? The mysterious stranger who showed up at a San Antonio church back in 1972 to warn the preacher about an international witch convention that never happened? Turns out that wasn't the only church he'd warned about the coming darkness. He traveled to dozens throughout the country before parlaying his creepy hobby into a full-time gig in the late 70s. 
Todd was a pioneer of the Satan seminar circuit, and reportedly got into backstage shouting matches with his fellow moral entrepreneurs, accusing them of stealing his bit. Todd told his audiences that he knew for a fact that JFK was still alive because he'd worked for him as his, quote, personal warlock. He also claimed Jimmy Carter was the Antichrist and told evangelicals to stockpile arms for the coming Satanic World Order, the blueprint for which, he said, was Ayn Rand's novel, Atlas Shrugged, which, I mean, fair. Now, not only was Todd claiming to be a former leader of the global devil witch cabal, he was also claiming to be an ex-member of the Illuminati, who were apparently bankrolling Jerry Falwell for some reason. In fact, Todd claimed to have personally paid 8 million Illuminati dollars to an unnamed preacher to fund the invention of Christian rock. No joke. He said their secret plan was to lure unsuspecting kids to Satan with the quote, demonic beats of Christian rock bands. I guess DC Talk didn't get the memo. But as the panic bled into the mainstream, Todd faded into the crowded field of more palatable competitors, relatively speaking, of course. By the late 80s, his brand was completely toxic among the religious right, mostly due to his proclivity for accusing every one of their leaders of being a secret devil worshipper. And he soon found himself with only one prominent defender left, our old pal, Jack Chick. The cartoonist was a huge fan of Todd's work and a vocal proponent of his satanic New World Order conspiracy theory. Todd even served as the inspiration for some of Chick's most memorable characters and messaging, including his infamous anti-D&D tracks. In fact, he often signed the tracks with a dedication beneath the final panel. Deepest appreciation to John Todd, ex-Grand Druid Priest. Chick was such an ardent supporter of Todd that it eventually ruined his reputation among evangelicals and all but ended his career. He kept making his cartoons though, self-publishing them on his website up until his death in 2016 at the age of 92. Todd, meanwhile, was arrested in South Carolina in 1987 for rape and child molestation, something that's remarkably common among moral entrepreneurs, and I guess just tends to happen when you make doth protesting too much your full-time job. John Todd, Archdruid of the Satanic Cabal died in a state psychiatric facility in 2007. But his delusions lived on. For the past 20 years, racist Christian identity militias have been peddling Todd's conspiratorial delusions, just tweaked a bit and repackaged into agitprop in their effort to turn America into a literal fascist theocracy. Patricia Pulling, founder of Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons, faded into obscurity after Mike Stackpole's 1992 expose caused her to resign in disgrace. She died of lung cancer in 1997. Her partner, Thomas Rudecki, tried to keep bad going in her absence, so Stackpole went after him next. The two of them held a televised debate in 1993, and Stackpole trounced him, and it wasn't just an embarrassing intellectual beatdown. In preparation for the debate, Stackpole said, I'd faxed to CBS a copy of the consent decree in which Radecki surrendered his license to practice medicine and his license to prescribe drugs. A year later, CBS News used that decree in an expose where they showed Radecki acting to get blonde-haired, blue-eyed co-eds to act as surrogate moms for yuppie couples. Radecki faced charges in Illinois for inappropriate sexual conduct with a patient, and it came with a five-year suspension of his medical license. That was the last time, to the best of my knowledge, that Radecki ever mentioned games or gaming. And though Radecki's license was eventually restored, he got busted again in 2013 for trading opioids for sex. As of this recording, he's still in prison. 
William Deere, P.I., enjoyed a lucrative career after unwittingly kickstarting the panic's anti-D&D mania. In 1981, he spearheaded an effort in Fort Worth to exhume the body of Lee Harvey Oswald to prove the corpse wasn't actually him, but instead a Soviet spy. Or at least that's what he told any camera he could find. In reality, he just worked as a security guard during the exhumation, which did actually happen and is its own weird little story that we'll link to in our Patreon blog. Deer went on to star in a TV series called Alien Autopsy and, according to him, became a millionaire. To his credit, he did sell a fair amount of books over the years, two of which were attempts to prove the innocence of O.J. Simpson. Yes, two. He also ran an unsuccessful bid for Texas governor against Wendy Davis in the 2010 Democratic primary. He's still an active PI, unreliable narrator, and pain in the ass of every law enforcement officer in North Texas. The chief of the Irving police recently told reporters that the city's medical examiner wants to quote, perform an autopsy on William Deere while he's still alive. You can find him on Facebook if you're ever in need of a world-class gumshoe. Linda Norton, the forensic pathologist whose testimony helped bring down Dr. Erdman and DA Travis Ware back in part two, is someone we didn't get to mention as much as we should have. She's a child advocate who spent her life fighting pseudoscience in her field, including discrediting shaken baby syndrome and helping to free dozens of innocent people who were put in jail by Erdman and others like him. These are the cases, she said, that make you want to throw up. And back in 1981, she just happened to be working at the Dallas Institute of Forensic Science, where she was the chief pathologist on the exhumation of Lee Harvey Oswald. Next time someone tells you there are no coincidences, tell them to read a history book sometime. Oh, and then tell them to get the fuck off of 8chan. Ricky Bradford is still in prison for the murder of Terry Trosper back in Childress. We managed to find a Facebook page for him, which was briefly active twice in the past 15 years. There's only a handful of posts, each one a declaration of his innocence and a prayer. Childress's most famous native son, Lou Dobbs, was abruptly fired from Fox Business Channel while we were writing the script for this episode. We have no idea what he's up to now, so that's been nice. During a 1995 interview, Geraldo Rivera recanted and sort of apologized for his Exposing Satan's Underground special, saying, quote, I want to publicly announce that as a firm believer of the Believe the Children movement of the 1980s, I am now convinced that I was terribly wrong, and many innocent people were convicted and went to prison as a result. And I am equally positive that the repressed memory therapy movement is also a bunch of crap. Too little, too late, Geraldo. Fuck off, you shitty little weasel. Unfortunately, that shitty weasel fucked off straight to Fox News, where he's still getting paid for some reason to this very day. Barry Goldwater became a full-fledged libertarian in the 1980s, having been disgusted by the rise of the religious right, which he'd personally laid the groundwork for. He spent the last two decades of his life advocating for personal liberty, medical marijuana, abortion access, and LGBT rights, after his grandson came out as gay, of course. In the 90s, he declared that the GOP had been taken over by, quote, a bunch of kooks, and told them, quote, Do not associate my name with anything you do. You are extremists, and you've hurt the Republican Party much more than the Democrats have. Quite a damning indictment from the guy who so famously called extremism in defense of liberty no vice. During the 1996 presidential race, two years before his death, he told GOP candidate Bob Dole, quote, We're the new liberals of the Republican Party. Can you imagine that? Indeed we can, Mr. Goldwater. Indeed we can. Phyllis Schlafly went on to become a rather prolific author of all manner of hateful garbage and continued to be an architect and vanguard for right-wing cultural grievances, especially when it came to immigration. 
1992, her son was outed as gay, and to her credit, she refused to disown him. There was plenty of liberal howling at the time about her blatant hypocrisy, but honestly, standing by her son was the only good thing Phyllis Schlafly ever did in her 92-year blight on this earth. But, of course, it didn't change her opinion on gay rights. In 2006, she told a reporter that the advent of disposable diapers did more to improve women's lives than feminism ever could. A year later, she argued that it doesn't count as rape if she's your wife. Schlafly finally died in 2016, but not before publishing one last book, which hit the shelves within 12 hours of her final breath. It was a spiritual sequel of sorts to her first book, A Choice Not an Echo, and a fitting book into her life and legacy. It's called The Conservative Case for Trump. Jerry Falwell died in 2007, and his namesake son did his best to carry on his father's legacy, but his plans kind of fell apart when Twitter found out that he had a thing for watching his wife bang the pool boy. Dr. Roland Summit is still practicing psychiatry in California, and still, to this day, insists that there are secret devil tunnels hidden beneath the empty plot where McMartin Preschool once stood. Dr. Randy Noblet is currently a professor of clinical psychology at Alliant International University in California, where he also moonlights as a licensed marriage counselor. His 19... <laughs> For real. His 1995 book on satanic ritual abuse is still the gold standard for SRA believers and still, according to the reviews, quote, incoherent. Dr. Cory Don Hammond is still working at the University of Utah School of Medicine, despite the multiple malpractice suits against him over the years. Not to mention the fact that his antics cost the state of Utah a quarter million dollars in the pursuit of false SRA claims. But people still cite his work as though it were real. Countless followers of his methodology have lost their licenses and destroyed their patients' lives. And his cult, albeit diminished, is still alive and well to this day. Its most prominent manifestation being an internet newsletter slash organization called Stop Mind Control and Ritual Abuse Today, or SMART. We have to be a little careful here because they will definitely come after us if they stumble across this podcast. When they're not attacking their critics online or accusing the media of lying about them, they're hosting an annual conference for SRA believers and survivors from all over the world. Attendees of the weekend-long hotel expos are treated to a non-stop barrage of paranoid insanity where they're warned against using phones or email, watching Disney movies or The Wizard of Oz, or shaking hands with people. And they're advised to constantly watch everyone around them for nonverbal signals of cult involvement, like tapping their foot, winking, or quote, weird grins. They also make a point to say that anyone who criticizes them is actively working to harm abuse survivors, which is both a childish, painfully transparent defense mechanism and a well-documented red flag for conspiracy thinking, psychological abuse, and cults. All of which will, unfortunately, come up again later. They post all of their PowerPoints for every session from every year on their website, free for anyone to look at, just saying. Some of it's funny, but a lot of it isn't. Like telling survivors of abuse to be constantly concerned that everyone they know, or meet, or have ever met could potentially be an undercover handler for the satanic cabal. You might want to watch who is around you, who is within your physical space, who brushes shoulders with you, who touches you, who sits next to you, who is near your food, as well as watch where you drive and what cars are behind or near you. Now, legally speaking, we're not saying that every word of that is just as cruel and manipulative as it is delusional and stupid, nor, legally speaking, are we accusing them of fostering a miserable culture of fear and paranoia among people who at the very least believe themselves to be victims of horrific trauma. 
we're just saying, legally speaking, they can go fuck themselves. And these people aren't the right-wing nutjobs you might assume they are. When Hannity screams at the elderly about the evil liberal eggheads of academia, these are the real-life straw men he's talking about. In fact, one of their PowerPoints compares Fox News to Nazi propaganda and calls Donald Trump a mind-controlling fascist, which, to be fair, is really more of Tucker's thing. In the past couple years, it's been hard to ignore the overlap of conspiracism, New Age spirituality, and fringe academics on the bleeding edge of pseudoscience, but it's not new. In its current form, it traces directly back to Summit and Hammond and the secularization of SRA, but its roots run much deeper, all the way back to the eugenics movement of the early 20th century and further to alternative medicine in the century before that. Quick plug for our series, Wizards of Crazy Water. Of all the demons that dwell between the pages of American history, the satanic panic is a lesser one. It's no Salem or McCarthy, but it's not all that different either. It's like the American id slinks out of the sewers every 30 years like Pennywise the Clown, and whatever form it takes next may very well and very likely be much worse. And our response to that streak of evil within us, great or small, is all too often the same. We're taught to sing in unison the age-old refrain. It was a different time. They didn't know what we know now, so you can't fault them for it. But they did, and we can. And if we don't, it will happen again. Maybe you've caught our not-so-subtle references throughout this series. Or, you know, maybe you've read the news at any point in the past year or four. But Dr. Hammond's green bomb theory has been making something of a comeback lately. Or more accurately, his reimagining of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion is getting a slick modern reboot. And no matter what you might assume or might have heard on the news, it's got a concerning number of fans, whether they know it or not. Videos of supposed SRA victims are starting to circulate on Facebook. Derek Chauvin's defense was that George Floyd was a super predator by any other name. Laura Ingram has been lamenting the radical left's plan to destroy the nuclear family. Senator Josh Hawley is ginning up fears about daycares. Candace Owens' recent hot take on Cardi B will sound no different in 20 years than Tipper Gore's take on Twisted Sister did in 1985. Lynn Wood is claiming masks and social distancing are actually satanic rituals. To quote journalist and activist Debbie Nathan once again, one of the hallmarks of a panic is that you don't realize it's a panic when you're in the middle of it. At an event called the Million Trump March last December, Alex Jones howled at the crowd through his megaphone. The system is publicly stealing this election from the biggest landslide and the biggest political realignment since 1776. And on that second part at least, he's not wrong. Which brings us back one final time to our five pillars of panic. We're due for the next American political and cultural realignment. Most political scientists think that the point of demarcation was the 2016 election, which makes a lot of sense. But there's also the possibility that 2024 might be the true turning point that history remembers. Time will tell. Pillar 1. Economic Uncertainty Think 2008 financial crisis and the Great Recession, Occupy Wall Street and the Tea Party, housing shortages, the rise of the billionaire class, a new gilded age of corporate trusts, an ascendant China, student loan debt, inflation fears, a generation worse off than their parents, the COVID lockdowns, and subsequent economic devastation of local businesses. Pillar 2. Revolution in Media Think social fucking media. Pillar 3. Controversial Science Think stem cells, climate change, COVID conspiracies, vaccines, 5G, and the algorithmic shove down the rabbit hole. 
Pillar 4, Social Progress and Backlash. Think marriage equality and Chick-fil-A, trans acceptance and bathroom bills, the Me Too movement and Trumpism, defund the police and the thin blue line, BLM protests and the siege of the Capitol. Think literally everything happening around us every day, all the time. Pillar 5, Folk Devil Politics and Conspiracism. Think Antifa, BLM, the Chinese Communist Party, communists in general, anarchists, socialists, Marxists, progressives, coastal elites, radical liberals, whatever that is, Satanists, migrant caravans, college, Russiagate, woke Twitter, the mainstream media, the deep state voting machines, big tech, wayfair, cancel culture, critical race theory, and the president of the United States running for re-election on the message that his centrist opponent, the architect of the 94 crime bill, was somehow a radical leftist out to burn down the suburbs because he hates America. So basically, every folk devil of the past 100 years just awkwardly cobbled together like, um, like Mr. Potato Head or something. Right. Shit. And, of course, there's the new Great Awakening within the Church of Conspiracism, QAnon. And to think, when we first started writing this series, we thought we'd have to explain what the hell that is. What a difference a year can make. By this point, you probably know at least the broad strokes, and there's plenty of documentaries out there if you really want the details. You don't. But just in case, here's the world's shortest primer on the subject. QAnon is a Frankenstein's chimera of the satanic panic, extreme fundamentalist Christianity, every conspiracy theory and urban legend of the past century, end times millenarianism, numerology, internet trolling, cultish worship of Donald Trump as a messianic figure, depraved torture porn fanfiction, and crowdsourced mad libs for racists, all haphazardly sloshed together into a William S. Burroughs cut-up edition of The Protocols of the Elders of Zion. Now take all of that and adapt it into an interactive, open-sourced, online role-playing puzzle game. And that's QAnon. Q is the world's worst dungeon master, who lucked his way into spawning an international escape room with no way out and a timer that never hits zero. The Anons are the players of that game, an escape team in which every member is the guy who's convinced the barcode sticker on the bottom of the prop chair is obviously a clue and keeps trying to pry the electrical outlet off with his keys. It's corrupted play in its purest, most vile, and virulent form. This past summer, QAnon believers launched a massive agitprop and disinformation campaign by hijacking the name of a legit anti-trafficking organization, Save the Children, and using it as a viral hashtag. The goal was to dupe well-meaning people who were rightfully concerned about human trafficking into spreading thinly-veiled QAnon conspiracy theories on social media to recruit more followers and wake people up to the idiot riddles of some teenage racist on the internet. And unfortunately, it really worked. Search traffic and social media engagement for the theory spiked to unprecedented levels, swelling the ranks of true believers and even sparking grassroots rallies in cities across the country that bore more than a passing resemblance to the Believe the Children rallies of the 1980s. The Anons managed to engineer a real-life moral panic without the help of the mainstream media or explicit support from prominent authority figures, and the consequences were very real. The phone lines of anti-trafficking organizations were clogged with false tips, delusional rantings, and even death threats, just like they were in the late 80s. And it was more than just a waste of people's time. As advocate Rebecca Bender put it, quote, We've made so much progress raising awareness that human trafficking is very rarely about stranger danger. But with all the conspiracy theories going on right now, it feels like our work is being undone. It's heartbreaking for those of us who dedicate our lives to this cause. 
Even worse, it made it difficult to filter out the real calls from the deranged nonsense, which meant the actual tips were lost in the shuffle, and so were the actual victims of human trafficking. Worse still, a shocking number of anti-trafficking organizations actually followed Q down the rabbit hole, like Operation Underground Railroad. Don't ever give them money. Not to mention all the anti-sex, moral majority type orgs who were all too happy to hitch a ride on the crazy train as long as it got more people on board to destroy the lives of sex workers in pursuit of their puritanical fever dreams. If you actually want to help stop human trafficking, thoroughly research where your money's going and most importantly, support sex workers. And then there's the backlash. As Haley McNamara of the International Center on Sexual Exploitation put it, quote, When you have these very extreme narratives, there's always pushback in the opposite direction. We've even seen some people saying that sex trafficking itself is a myth. It's true. Cohen said 50 years ago that dismissing things as just moral panics can in itself be wrong and damaging. Like the real victims of abuse getting overlooked or lost in the crowd of grifters during the satanic panic. Sometimes even the most well-intentioned skeptics can will themselves into actual witches. So you know, stay mindful. You don't want to prove the bastards right. Genuinely well-intentioned people can and do get suckered in by dangerous propaganda and batshit nonsense. Some even join cults. And like we've tried to drive home throughout this series, you're not immune. None of us are. Half the people listening to this right now were unwitting participants in the Cambridge Analytica scandal just because you took some stupid Facebook quiz to see which Harry Potter house you were in. If you think you're above it, well, let he who searches their Facebook posts for Coney 2012 cast the first stone. All of us are a little overconfident in our own ability to discern truth from lies. You may think this is getting too political or whatever, but the truth is it's always been political. In the past, it was just more obscured in euphemism and metaphor, and even then, not all that deeply, and not at all anymore. Wait, are we talking about folk devils or this show? Oh, God, I wish we were doing Astroworld. In this new age of competition for our commodified attention, the rumor mill has been repurposed into an outrage machine that feeds on our emotions, insecurities, fears, and divisions, and churns out heaps of cash for whoever can best exploit them. We've collectively ripped off the old cracking veneer of a civility that never was, and from its tatters, fashioned ourselves a death shroud for nuance. Which brings us back to the Church of Conspiracism. In his famous essay, The Paranoid Style in American Politics, Richard Hofstadter wrote, quote, The modern right wing feels dispossessed. America has been largely taken away from them and their kind, though they are determined to try to repossess it and to prevent the final destructive act of subversion. The old American virtues have already been eaten away by cosmopolitans and intellectuals. The old competitive capitalism has been gradually undermined by socialistic and communistic schemers. The old national security and independence have been destroyed by treasonous plots. Having as their most powerful agents not merely outsiders and foreigners as of old, but major statesmen who are at the very centers of American power. Important changes may also be traced to the effects of the mass media. The villains of the modern right are much more vivid than those of their paranoid predecessors, much better known to the public. Hofstadter was talking about Barry Goldwater and the John Birch Society way back in 1964. So yeah, this isn't a new phenomenon. You can trace the lineage all the way back to the 1690s, the demonization of indigenous cultures, changing roles for women, urban growth, challenges to Puritan hegemony, book burnings, even an international witch conspiracy. 
In 1895, at the height of another political realignment, leaders of the Populist Party railed against secret international cabals who were undermining the financial mobility of the people. Sixty years later, the John Birch Society pressured United Airlines, Xerox, and others into distancing themselves from the UN. They invented cancel culture. Well, them and Joe McCarthy, of course. Lyman Beecher claimed that sinister elites were sending Catholic immigrants to bring crime, take our jobs, and replace the electorate. Conspiracists like to cite that long history of paranoia as proof that they're right, but all it really proves is that we never learn from our mistakes. The core dogma of the Church of Conspiracism hasn't changed much in the past two centuries, even as the narrative has shifted and the villain swapped out. Like, say, Land of Lakes or Aunt Jemima, it evolves its branding to keep up with the times. In the 1950s, Elvis's hips were satanic art. Then it was Easy Rider, Ozzy Osbourne, the elderly couple in Childress, the reversible paintings on the walls of Fran's daycare, the decor of Comet Ping Pong, Lil Nas X. The all-seeing eye on the dollar bill became backmasked subliminal messages on Wasp albums and wild interpretations of dumpster graffiti, Dan Brown, then QAnon breadcrumbs. Rothschild became Soros, who, by the way, only ranks number 288 on Forbes' list of richest people. He's a cookie-cutter liberal donor with milquetoast ideas about making the market slightly less volatile. If he's a socialist, then Taco Bell is an Austin taco truck. Did we mention that Soros is Jewish? James Dallas Egbert III steam tunnels became McMartin Preschool's underground torture tunnels, which became Jade Helm's martial law tunnels beneath the local Walmart, which became QAnon's cross-country cave prison for mole children. The red yarn on the basement bulletin board just became blurry JPEGs marked up in MS Paint. It's all the same misguided search for coded meaning, for a simple answer to problems that are too damn complicated to fit on a meme. The commonalities between conspiracy theories and folklore have been thoroughly researched and demonstrated time and again for decades, and America is nothing if not a land built on folklore. Our entire national story is steeped in mythology and tall tales, from George Washington's cherry tree to Johnny Appleseed's poison Halloween candy. But conspiracies predate and outlive them all. And it was during the satanic panic that conspiracism slowly consumed and absorbed the rest until there was nothing left of Americana but a vague deification of the Founding Fathers, urban legends, televangelism, and grim visions of a dystopian future, if not a dystopian present. Conspiracism is our national religion, and its congregation is growing fast and going mainstream. And you can trace a lot of its roots to our own backyard. Texas has been the world headquarters of conspiracism ever since someone claimed to hear a gunshot from the grassy knoll. In the early 90s, militia groups became obsessed with Waco and passed around conspiracist VHS tapes at gun shows and, like Timothy McVeigh, hawked them from their trunks outside the Branch Davidian compound. It was a little before the time of neologisms like Deep State and Cabal, so the scapegoat for Waco was still the Illuminati. It's especially weird because all the components of a conspiracy were already there. Government overreach, bloated law enforcement budgets, politicians and federal agents manipulating those above them to get what they want, and an ongoing cover-up, to some extent at least, about the FBI and ATF's actions during the standoff. For more on that, check out our episode, and I will go to Texas. So why bother to shoehorn Satanist secret societies and blood sacrifice into the mix? Maybe because the official narrative was a conspiracy. Most folks recognized that at the time, and nearly everyone does now. Even the sheeple saw the truth. And to the Church of Conspiracism, there is no higher form of heresy. 
you don't want too many people to convert to your faith. Because if everyone knows the truth, the conspiracist becomes just another mediocre nobody. In 1998, Alex Jones drove out to the burnt foundations of Mount Carmel to organize the rebuilding of the Branch Davidian compound using listener donations and volunteer labor from local militia groups. He was 26 at the time, and nobody outside the gun show circuit and Austin hipster cliques knew who he was. But even back then, it was obvious he had something his fellow public access blowhards lacked. Showmanship. Within a few short years, he'd go from broadcasting from the nursery in his Austin backyard to donning his robes as America's high priest of conspiracism. The delusional freakout over the 2015 military exercise Jade Helm started in Bastrop, just outside of Austin. It was immediately amplified by Jones and cynically capitalized upon by Governor Greg Abbott, who then took it to Fox News, who in turn broadcast it to every corner of Reagan country. But the man most responsible for mainstreaming Alex Jones' ravings is Glenn Beck, who, as we've mentioned in episodes past, is based in North Texas now, about 15 minutes from where we're recording this. These days, he's a mostly irrelevant figure desperately peddling QAnon garbage somewhere on the internet. But 10 short years ago, he was the biggest star on Fox News, where every afternoon he'd stand in front of a bulletin board covered in newspeak scare words and photos of folk devils, and literally connect them with red yarn to convince boomers that Obama and Soros were the harbingers of cultural Marxism, which, again, is just a cute little Hitlerism for the Jews. He got away with it, too paving the way for others to get away with it, and worse, today. Thanks to Beck and his talk radio colleagues, American Newspeak continued to evolve, or devolve, to the point that the average guy on the street is deathly afraid of Marxism, but couldn't accurately define it if you offered him a million dollar cash prize. Socialism, fascism, liberalism, leftism, communism were all reduced to nothing more than simplistic synonyms for bad stuff that isn't me, or even just when the government does stuff. All those words are things you should hate and fear, but please, never look up in a dictionary. In the wake of Jade Helm, conspiracy culture took a markedly dark turn. Even Art Bell crossed into Infowars territory toward the end of 2015 abandoning all the Bigfoot ghost stuff that made his show so great for decades in favor of doomsaying about the coming rise of global fascism. In a way, he and Alex Jones were right about that. They just didn't know the right definition of the word. It was revealed in Jones's highly publicized 2017 child custody hearing that he'd been diagnosed with narcissistic personality disorder, much like Eric Harris and so many other high-profile figures in conspiracism, politics, business, and murder. To quote John Ronson in The Guardian, High-scoring narcissists are prone to paranoia and black-and-white thinking. Through their eyes, everyone is either wonderful or else they're the enemy. And narcissists need to feel like they're the smartest person in the room. Hence, I suspect, they're reaching for conspiracy theories with their obnoxiously counterintuitive, superficially complex worldviews. Superficially complex is a perfect way to phrase it. Occam's Razor says the explanation which makes the fewest assumptions is usually the correct one. But as our friends in the science fields know all too well, the simplest explanation still takes a long-ass time to explain and a fair amount of context to properly understand. That's true of history, too. That's where a second razor might come in handy. The shortest explanation is probably a lie. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was making true, accurate history so goddamn hard to explain. To quote Hofstadter again, A distinguished historian has said that one of the most valuable things about history is that it teaches us how things do not happen. It is precisely this kind of awareness that the paranoid fails to develop. 
We are all sufferers from history, but the paranoid is a double sufferer, since he is afflicted not only by the real world with the rest of us, but by his fantasies as well. As anyone who's seen the maps and memes of QAnon knows, it's insanely convoluted, but it's a superficial complexity. The truth is that conspiracism is the path of least resistance, a black and white worldview devoid of all context or nuance. It's magical thinking and a simplistic good and evil absolutism, no different than puritanical Salem, just with accent splashes of red yarn. To quote Hofstadter, again from 1964, the paranoid spokesman sees the fate of conspiracy in apocalyptic terms. He traffics in the birth and death of whole worlds, whole political orders, whole systems of human values. He is always manning the barricades of civilization. The paranoid's interpretation of history is distinctly personal. Decisive events are not taken as part of the stream of history, but as the consequence of someone's will. As a member of the avant-garde, capable of perceiving the conspiracy before it is fully obvious to an as-yet unaroused public, the paranoid is a militant leader. Since what is at stake is always a conflict between absolute good and absolute evil, what is necessary is not compromise, but the will to fight things out to the finish. Since the enemy is thought of as being totally evil and totally unappeasable, he must be totally eliminated. Very often the enemy is held to possess some especially effective source of power. He controls the press. He has unlimited funds. He has a new secret for brainwashing. It is hard to resist the conclusion that this enemy is on many counts the projection of the self. Both the ideal and unacceptable aspects of the self are attributed to him. It's why the staunchly anti-Catholic KKK dons robes and has an elaborate hierarchy with esoteric rituals and pageantry. It's why the John Birch Society explicitly organized themselves the way they believed communist terror cells did. It's why they want to be smarter than the academics and experts, but without having to do the work. They want to preserve history by revising it or erasing it altogether. They want to protect freedom by way of authoritarian takeover. It's projection, elevated to an art form, because as long as they are devils, they can still be heroes. And we want to be clear, there are a lot of conspiracies that were and are very real. Iran-Contra, the FBI assassinating Black Panthers and trying to coax MLK into suicide, CIA projects like MKUltra, exploding cigars, and the orchestration of right-wing coups across the globe for the benefit of American fruit corporations. A conspiracy got us into the Iraq War and kept us in Afghanistan to this very day, to which the conspiracists simply shrug while they screech endlessly about 9-11 being an inside job. They know something is wrong, but in their search for hidden meaning and self-affirmation, they overlook the symbols hiding in plain sight. And no, I don't mean the Star of David, I mean the dollar signs. When our value as human beings is reduced to the size of our bank account or our place in the social pecking order, people have a hard time coping with their station, down here, with the rest of us. Rather than raging against an unjust system, they strive instead to become one of the elite few at the top of it, and as a consequence, see those below them as the anchor dragging them down, while they lick the boot that's crushing down on their face from above. As Donald Trump told an audience at a campaign rally, They're not the elites, you're the elites. Conspiracists aren't renegades, they're just aspiring folk illuminati in denial. The counterintuitiveness should be obvious, but it's not. It's just how we're wired. It's the power of storytelling, mythology, folklore. It's rags to riches, meritocracy, supply-side economics, the American dream. We were told that if we work hard and we follow the rules, we'd rise up the ladder based on our talents and merit, but it doesn't happen. 
So we work harder, longer, for less, while things just keep getting more expensive every day. Without the cultural vocabulary to express our discontent, to accurately define the source of our problems, we search desperately for folk devils to blame, to make sense of our plight. When there's a company with a few people at the top promising riches to anyone willing to put in the work, pressuring you to recruit more below you while you pass most of your meager earnings up to those above you, with constant reinforcement of the idea that your inability to break even, much less get ahead, is a personal moral failing, we call it a pyramid scheme. But when it's done on a macro scale, we call it freedom. One of the most popular QAnon videos, Q, The Plan to Save the World, begins with this monologue. Have you ever wondered why we go to war? Or why you never seem to be able to get out of debt? Why there is poverty, division, and crime? What if I told you there's a reason for it all? Yeah, dude, it's the money. The truth is, you are being lied to, manipulated, and oppressed by a global cabal. But they don't meet in secret at Bohemian Grove. They meet in Davos, Switzerland every year and livestream the whole thing. Bill Gates isn't trying to microchip you for population control. He's protecting patents on life-saving vaccines that hamper their distribution in developing countries because he wants to preserve the profit motive in medicine. The IRS is hounding you because rich folks are friends with their bosses. The government isn't out to get you. The people who fund political campaigns are. The media is biased propaganda, but not for secret commie Satanists, but for the decidedly not communist corporate shareholders who own them. The state isn't censoring you. You're in privatized, unaccountable Zucker jail because they think you're bad for business. Same with every so-called woke corporation changing its butter labels or whatever. It's not the radical Twitterati mobs of communists, it's the corporate shareholders and their marketing team focus groups. Celebrities and other powerful people don't live forever and stay looking young because they're harvesting adrenochrome from sacrificed mole children. Bruh. They're just rich enough to afford Botox and don't actually have to work for a living. And if you've got a case of late-stage capitalism, or low T, buy our supplements! It's no coincidence that the rise of conspiracies surrounding the Illuminati and Freemasons corresponds directly to the growth and expansion of the Industrial Revolution. As Conspiracy Theories in American History Volume 1 explains, the primary drivers of conspiracism are and have always been the distrust, resentment, and dysfunction of industrialization, mass production, assembly lines, replaceable labor, consumerism, and globalization. Conspiracy theories about puppet masters and brainwashed masses are just simplistic rationalizations for those things. And in the late 20th century, when laissez-faire liberalism evolved into neoliberal Reaganomics, where the state's primary function is the facilitation and protection of capital, the old Enlightenment ideals of liberty, equality, and justice took a backseat to it. That transition only necessitated further rationalizations, and will continue to do so until they eventually get so ridiculous, stretched so thin, that no rational person could possibly believe them anymore. And if you've ever read any of QAnon's shit, you might share our hunch that we're fast approaching that line, if it wasn't left in the dust long ago. Many of Q's followers believe that after the so-called storm, the newly reinstated President Trump will erase everyone's debt, nationalize social media, make miraculous futuristic healthcare and electricity free and available to all, and finally put an end to corporate America's stranglehold on the country. All of which sounds, and pardon our French, kinda Marxist. It's almost like hardline nationalists are dabbling in socialist rhetoric to win support from the working class, which, I don't know, there, it seems like there should be a word for that. Like social nationalism. Tucker, wh what's the word for that? Economic patriotism. 
No, no, not that one. Nationalism for social workers? Eh, it'll come to me, I'm sure. Anyway, that's why Marjorie Taylor Greene is rambling on her vlog about corporate communism, a term that's utterly nonsensical, but only if you know what the terms actually mean. She and her supporters are acutely aware that there's a problem, and they're right. They just can't see the privately owned forest for the corporation cutting down its trees. Those in power are actively conspiring to make your life worse for their own financial gain, and they're intentionally hiding that truth from you. But when that's no longer enough to give them cover, when they've pushed their greed just a little too far, they all pay their indulgences to the church of conspiracism to keep you in line. Governor Abbott was well aware of that when he made Jade Helm a thing, and he was still very aware of that during the power grid blackout just a few months ago. The only way to protect the interests of capital in the face of such glaring, unavoidable problems is to fan the flames of conspiracism. They want you to believe 5G space lasers and cancer windmills or whatever. They want you to trust the plan. It's manufactured consent just with pizzazz. And the truth behind every conspiracy theory, real or imagined, is always the same. It's just fucking business. We conjure folk devils as easy scapegoats, easy answers, easy explanations for our personal and collective anxieties, fears, impotence, and suffering. It's easier to make fictional stories into memories than it is to confront the true causes of our struggles. We propagandize ourselves. We vote to keep things this way. We viciously defend and propagate the bullshit talking points of the very same people who got us here in the first place. Who needs a satanic cabal when we do their job for them on Twitter every day? At the core of QAnon is the belief that there's nothing to worry about. Everything is under control, trust the plan, because they refuse to or can't cope with the truth, the true source of crime, poverty, persecution, because they, like the rest of us humans, don't want the truth. We want a story worth telling. We want the juicy prime cuts of humanity and its depravity. I mean, no one wants to bore their hairdresser to death. But in the words of the late great Carl Sagan, There are wonders enough out there without our inventing any. And as much as we love his optimism, our view is a bit more bleak. We have everything to worry about, and nothing is under control. Anybody who takes five minutes to look at QAnon's so-called research will probably conclude that it's just, well, really dumb. But a fair amount of people who buy into it really aren't. They're just looking for something. Not all that different from the rest of us, really. Community, purpose, a hobby, a distraction. Something that makes them feel smart, special, important, heroic, or just feel good about themselves in a world that couldn't care less. They're not looking for rational evidence or discourse. They're looking for an explanation. Something that makes their anger feel justified, directed, and heard. And if they can't find what they're looking for, they'll instead find an excuse and, more often than not, someone to hang. It's easier to believe the unbelievable than it is to admit that sometimes we're just wrong, or that we're struggling financially or mentally, that we're less informed about a subject than we'd like to be or like to believe, or that we're powerless to affect real change, that we're being manipulated and exploited by authorities we trust with our very lives and livelihoods. Our new speak vocabulary is so confused and diminished as to prevent us from ever being on the same page, much less bond over the recognition of our common struggles. The outrage mill churns out cash and buries us in our own feedback loops. It serves only one master, and man, it ain't the devil. It's cold hard cash. 
and maybe that's a distinction without a difference. Sometimes it's just easier to take the path of least resistance than it is to accept that the thing we call freedom might be something else entirely. Look, we're really not all that concerned if people want to believe crazy nonsense. I mean, we love crazy nonsense. And we really don't care if people want to try to find imaginary puzzles in the timestamps of tweets. We're game designers. We're all about imagination and MS Paint. What does concern us about QAnon is that it's quickly subsuming the American church of conspiracism, turning it into something more resemblant of a political cult, and uniting its countless disparate factions of conspiracists under a single tent. A circus tent, for sure, but one that's built on a foundation of ancient and insidious ideology, and beneath it, a mass grave. And QAnon, like the satanic panic before it, is starting to secularize. At the tail end of the 80s, the moral entrepreneurs rebranded their crusade as science and hid away all the overtly religious or blatantly ridiculous elements of it, mostly to keep the upper hand in court, but also to make it more palatable to a mainstream audience. It worked. And it's working again. The moral crusaders of the 1980s still believed in the veneer of law and order, of process, norms, and institutions. They used schools, churches, law enforcement, and courts to punish their folk devils. But like they say, it was a different time. In today's cult of conspiracism, all those things have been infiltrated by the enemy. They're illegitimate, obsolete, compromised. They're no longer on the right side of culture. Majority opinion has shifted. And this time, the Oyer and Terminer will be strung up right alongside the witches. Because when you strip away all the Alex Jones and David Icke stuff from QAnon, down to nothing but its socio-political bones, all that's left is paranoia, hatred, and bloodlust. The kind of freedom those of us on the right side of the dictionary would call something else entirely. And the devil, as they say, is very much in the details. Cohen's research, way back in 1972, illustrated an undeniable correlation between the crusaders of moral panics and authoritarian personality syndrome, specifically their, quote, cynicism and destructiveness, authoritarian submission, extreme punitiveness, puritanism, racial prejudice, fear of the masses, and projection. The rhetoric of moral panics is a firmly established one. We won't allow our area, town, or country to be taken over by hooligans, blacks, Pakistanis. The participants seek a justification for their actions, and the rumors provide the facts to sanction what the crowd wanted to do anyway. And what the crowd wants to do is burn fucking witches. If you take even just a five-minute scroll through literally any QAnon forum, you're bound to find a cesspool of extreme bigotry of every imaginable flavor and a delusional, depraved circle jerk of fantasy violence and hatred that makes YouTube comments look like the Oxford Debate Society. You don't have to be a therapist to spot the mental pathos and crippling insecurity on display. It should be almost comically transparent to pretty much anybody including white supremacists and neo-fascist groups on Telegram who talk openly about Q followers as potential easy recruits for their cause, or at the very least, useful idiots they can use for cannon fodder. And they're not wrong. The most popular QAnon outlet right now, by far, is a Telegram account called Ghost Ezra, with close to 400,000 followers and counting. Sure, a lot of their content is ridiculous stuff like the Earth being flat or Joe Biden having been replaced by actor James Woods in a mask. Seriously. But with every passing week, their content is increasingly trafficking more in Hitler apologetics than Q drops, and their subscriber count only continues to grow. 
According to Mark Andre Argentino, research fellow at the International Center for the Study of Radicalization, the astounding size of Ghost Ezra's following makes it the largest known neo-Nazi propaganda outlet in the world by a huge margin. And this cue to Hitler pipeline is no coincidence. In his 2010 essay, 9-11 at 9, Bill Weinberg wrote, quote, the obsession with conveniently hidden elites serves to let off the hook the very real elites that are in plain sight. Early fascism nearly always plays to populism and purports to be protecting the little guy against the machinations of all-powerful elites. The lie they tell is that the problem isn't class stratification, but those occulted elites pulling the strings behind the scenes who can be neatly extricated from the system. And who better to extricate them than the heroic truth-teller who is exposing them? Conspiracy theory is what fascism gives the little man, instead of a fundamental change in the system and an overturning of oppressive power relations. I mean, you can wave it off, dismiss it as political hackery or whatever you want, but when anti-government militias start demanding martial law, when street gangs like the Proud Boys all dress up in the same color shirts to go brawling with anti-fascists, when hundreds of people storm the Capitol building and erect a gallows on the front lawn, Man, all we're saying is that should probably raise some red flags. It's not partisanship, it's not hyperbole, it's just history. Which brings us, in the worst way, back to Texas. William Luther Pierce moved to Dallas as a child, grew up here, and got his degree in chemistry from Rice University down in Houston. He joined the John Birch Society in 1962, but resigned his membership because they weren't anti-Semitic enough for him. Seriously. He found a better fit for himself in the newly founded American Nazi Party, where he quickly became one of the most prominent and influential people in the modern white nationalist movement. He remains an icon in neo-fascist circles to this day, as he's often credited with originating what they call the Great Replacement Theory, also known as White Genocide Theory. You might recognize it from the Tiki Torch chants in Charlottesville, or more recently, from a thinly veiled diatribe on the highest rated cable news show in America. But Pierce's biggest claim to infamy was his self-published 1978 novel, The Turner Diaries. It's about an alliance of right-wing militias and conspiracy theorists who start a civil war a boogaloo, you might say, against the federal government, which is controlled by liberal elites who secretly pay black people to kidnap children for cannibalism. A cabal that funds BLM to kill children for adrenochrome, you might say. The militia and their allies in the U.S. military track down all the people they consider race traitors. Like liberals, interracial couples, journalists, celebrities, judges, politicians, academics, gay people, the list goes on. And publicly lynch them in what they call the Day of the Rope. A storm, you might say. The extrajudicial executions are videotaped and broadcast nationwide to quote, wake up mainstream Americans brainwashed by Hollywood. A great awakening of the normies, you might say to the true agenda of the globalists, by which they explicitly mean the Jews. And so does pretty much anyone else who uses the term outside an economics forum. Alex, Tucker. In 1985, white supremacist Robert J. Matthews and his militia buddies formed a group named after the fictional one in the novel and carried out a campaign of terrorism across the country, including armed robberies, arson, the bombing of a synagogue, and the assassination of a Jewish talk radio host. Days before he was shot to death in a firefight with federal agents, Matthews issued a public threat to Congress using direct quotes from Pierce's book. When the day comes, we will not ask whether you swung to the right or swung to the left. We will simply swing you by your neck. The FBI later uncovered the group's plans to sabotage the LA power grid and to bomb the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, where 10 years later, Timothy McVeigh would pick up where they left off. 
In the novel, the militia steals a truck, packs it with heating oil and ammonium nitrate fertilizer, and bombs a federal building at 9.15 in the morning. The only difference was that McVeigh rented his truck and detonated his bomb 13 minutes early. When police searched his getaway car, they found a sealed envelope in the glove box. Inside was a stack of conspiracist literature, including a highlighted clipping torn from page 62 of the Turner Diaries. It's been cited by a long list of far-right domestic terrorists and murderers over the past 30 years, including mass shooter Andrew Brevik and the self-proclaimed neo-Nazi who, in 1998, lynched James Byrd Jr. in Jasper, Texas. In the wake of the January 6th Capitol riot, videos circulated online of a proud boy telling a journalist on the scene to just read the book sometime. The Turner Diaries was written by an avowed neo-Nazi to be a fantasy stroke book and recruitment tool for budding white supremacists, with the explicit goal of inspiring a formidable fascist movement in the United States. But all the similarities to what QAnon calls the plan are probably just a coincidence. After all, they're just a bunch of gentle, flag-waving patriots. Isn't that right, Tucker? There are no coincidences! When fascism comes to America, most of us won't see it for what it is because we won't want to see it. And its most avid supporters won't see themselves for what they've become. Because when fascism comes to America, it'll call itself freedom. Historically, it's never been about conviction. It's always been about who's in charge. An ambiguous, amorphous grievance politics defined not at all by what it stands for, but what it stands against. Their enemies will be a paradox, and so will they. It'll say, choose, us or them, get on the right side of culture or wind up on the wrong end of a gun. And if it's not pointed out, stood up to, stamped out, every time and anywhere that it crops up, we all know how this story ends. Because it's one we've heard before, and one we swore we'd never hear again. History, truth, politics, it's complicated. Everything is. We all fear whatever future lies ahead of us and a past that's always hot on our heels. Nobody has all the answers, certainly not us, and definitely not some anonymous dipshit on 8chan. But no amount of research you or I or any one person can do will ever be enough on its own. We all carry our own piece of the puzzle, and it takes all of us, everyone, to put it all together to solve the systemic problems that give conspiracism its undue power and allure there's still time to steer ourselves away from our crash course with the inevitable, to end our collective alienation and bring about a true great awakening. All it takes is a little cooperation, mutual aid, solidarity, and the will to try. We don't need to trust the plan. We need to make one together, and only then can we let our humanity do the rest. But if you'd rather believe that a satanic, pedo-corporate, commie-fascist, liberal-Jewish cannibal cabal is anything more than just a rancid word salad for dudes who've never owned a bed frame, if what you want is martial law, a military junta, televised executions, holocaust denial, and civil war, if in your heart you truly pray for the storm to come, well, patriotism might not be the right word for it. In the immortal words of Q Clearance Patriot himself, think mirror. Because we're willing to bet that whatever it is you see staring back at you will only have one thing to say. Pleased to meet you. Hope you guessed my name. Texarkana is written and produced by us, Ryan Sheffield and Brad Dewar. 
recorded here in beautiful Denton, Texas. Home of Denton County Friends of the Family, a nonprofit supporting those impacted by rape, sexual abuse, and domestic violence. To donate or find comprehensive services and resources on safety, hope, healing, justice, and prevention, go to dcfof.org. This show is made possible by our generous supporters on Patreon. Melody Ross, Matt Fjordbach, Tim Lane Propstra, Jake Jernigan, Elizabeth Yang, Sean Treat, and Zach Wayne. If you'd like to support the show, you can find us at patreon.com slash texarcana. The more support we can get, the more texarcana we can make. Music by Whiskey Folk Ramblers. We'll be back soon with a nice, short, one-off episode this time, we promise. We'll see you then. Thanks for listening. Randy! Ha, ha, ha.